0: Welcome to the Absolute Purpose Project, a podcast series by Absolute PR and Marketing that investigates inspiring and enlightening individuals, brands and organisations that focus on purpose as a force for good. In our podcast series, we will explore the best ways of communicating purpose through the eyes of some of the UK's most inspirational communicators and their compelling and often quirky stories. The Absolute Purpose Project is an extension of the work the agency has been doing for the last 20 years in guiding brands to deliver environmental and social impacts through action, innovation and communication. UBI provides software and support for farms and local food retailers to independently sell and deliver to homes and collection points. Our next guest, Pete Russell, and his team believe that improving the way that food is produced and distributed is fundamental to solving the world's most pressing social and ecological problems. Ubi's mission is to put small scale, local, sustainable farming right back at the heart of the food system that we all depend on. So without further ado, welcome, Pete Russell. How are you? I'm
1: very well. Thanks, Jenny. How are you?
0: i'm doing all right actually it's the sun's shining life is good um so i just go straight into my first question with you pete so in your words i know that i've touched on it in the introduction please can you explain the purpose of ubi
1: there's a lot of purposes to ubi but i think the the core purpose is about giving small-scale independent ecological food growers and food producers. Uh, independence, like real independence. The ability for them to be able to earn a decent living without being at the effect of large supply chains, centralized supply chains, and the ability for them to be able to serve their own local regions and communities, to be able to set prices that are fair and reasonable for both their customers and themselves, and to be able to stand on their own two feet. And by doing that, we're helping to create a, a condition where local food systems can can thrive
0: sounds very sensible especially in this day and age
1: yeah well we think so
0: (laughs) so i just wonder sort of when you were starting the business up what were what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced did you have any resistance from any of the growers or the consumers from the beginning could you just tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah well i think when we started ubi it was actually in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008, and I was doing something completely different. It's got the opposite end of the spectrum. I was part of um, a large sort of centralized food company, you know, or conglomerate uh, in Europe that was selling frozen pastries exported from Europe across the equator to Australia and around all the supermarkets. And, and the 2008 crisis was the catalyst for me to rethink about what what is food and what what part do I want to play with it. Because it that that capsized our business. It made me see how fragile our the large scale food systems are. And that was the cause of me to think, how else should food be done? The challenges that we faced at the beginning were firstly really trying to understand how a small scale and, and local food systems could work and trying to think about how they were in the past and, and how they need to be in the future given all the changes and then articulating that into a, into a way that people could, could understand. But very quickly, we found that there was a movement at that time of people who were really waking up to, to the challenges within society. 2008 was a real wake up, wake up time. We actually didn't have much challenges when we when it came to getting going because there were a lot of people who were resonating with it. But then I think the big challenge came when come 2010, 2011, things had eased off. The, the crises of the financial crisis had calmed down. And then it was a matter of how do we stay alive because we'd attracted a niche customer base that really understood. But outside of that niche, there was like a firewall, you know. You either yeah. you're either aware or you're completely ignorant to, and that, that was the hard the hard path from sort of 2010 through to about 2019, really.
0: I guess um, it feels a bit like when the times are really tough, people start thinking about these things.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and that's how it was. And so when times aren't tough, they quite happy to just carry on business as usual. And then in terms of resistance from customers. It was resistance from those customers outside of that niche, and then in terms of resistance from growers, well, farmers are—they're slow to trust yeah. the, new, the, the next new thing. They think something's going yeah. to come and go, so there was resistance. But I think just being around for a long time slowly, slowly helped to overcome that.
0: So, how many how many farmers do you actually currently work with then around the world?
1: Most most of the activity on Ubi Now is actually in the UK. So we've got two hubs in New Zealand and one in Australia, but 50 or 47, well, actually, no, it's about 50 now in the UK, uh, which the first one started in in May of 2020. So it's been fairly rapid growth since Mm -hmm. we arrived here. And each hub each hub trades with a various number of farmers and and food producers so some will be buying from 20 or so different suppliers others will be buying from five but probably on average about 10 so there's possibly you know it's around about 500 or so different farms and food producers that are supplying into that network of hubs so yeah
0: and how do you how do you actually interact with them i mean on a human level or is it all sort of technology based
1: Yes, there is a human level. I mean, a lot of the human interaction has been like this on video call. We, we have definitely traveled. We've definitely gone and visited farms and met people in, in person. But of course, when we were establishing, everything was locked down anyway. So we had to do it via, via these calls. But yeah, there is a lot of interaction actually. And I think this is one of the differences between Ubi as a technology company is yes, it's high tech but it's also very much high touch. Like we have to, we need to have a lot of conversations with the farmers and the, and mm. the hub operators to make sure that you know that they understand the best way to use the system. We've got a lot of domain expertise from having been in their shoes for 10 years back in, back in New Zealand and Australia. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a conversational space. And then the, the software comes in and, and, and actually gives them the facility to operate independently.
0: So I guess the start I- the start of any relationship is relatively slow yep. but then it will speed up once the uh, technology takes control.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It takes time. I mean I think that's the thing that we've got to we've got to recognize is that artificially speeding things up isn't necessarily a good idea, right? So just like you throwing fertilizer or you know synthetic fertilizers onto onto plants will speed them up but it won't necessarily result in, in a higher quality product and that's that's the approach we're taking with EV is one step at a time uh, but then you know the the longer we've been doing it the the faster we're able to do it without without tripping over ourselves
0: so what about how you've communicated your journey how did you start to communicate your journey and how are you what have you learned from that and adapted to this present time
1: well the communication has really been internally focused primarily
0: right right?
1: so the communication of the journey has been really about the communication to the growers the communication to the customers and through that, through really focusing on, on talking to the people that are involved, that has created sort of word of mouth spreading out. But we haven't had very much sort of, well, there's been times that we've had bits of publicity here and there. But most of the communication has been around just dealing with working on the day-to-day challenges that, that each different member of the organization or the, you know, of, of the platform are dealing with. And, and just staying, you know, staying focused on the reason. The, the communication has very much been around the purpose of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and, you know, in, and the other part of the communication is constantly reminding and sort of remembering that we're in a time, I think, in society where all the sort of the institutions and the, and the systems and things that we've been relying on over the last 80 years are kind of in you know in, in a breakdown mode they're breaking down in order for something else to come up and if we can remember that and that, that that you know the purpose of us being here isn't is is more about how can we how can we serve that 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 transitional process and yeah so so that's the that's the sort of the frame that we that we communicate within
0: do you think this is a bit off piste here but people have often recently said to me that we will look at this moment right now as a moment of transition
1: absolutely i think that the 2020s pre before 2020s and after 2020s this decade
0: yeah
1: is uh is i think is going to be looked back on as an absolute transitional point
0: yeah um,
1: okay. i thought that uh, i thought 2010s was that but this is no this is something else and and then in hindsight you look back and you think well actually yeah no, it takes time for this sort of process to unravel to its full extent. But yeah. I, I do I do feel like we're right in the middle or in the sort of the early stages of the, of the of it.
0: But it's happening rapidly, right?
1: Oh, it's happening rapidly. It's happening as we speak. It's 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 no it's no longer something that's coming. It's it's come. It's he.
0: It's and here, we're, and we're, and in, we're in the middle of it changing. It's crazy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And so the the condition therefore the conditions that that we're working to solve aren't the conditions of yesterday, it's like that's, I guess the point is, what we're working on are situations that we've yet to encounter.
0: Yeah, and you're just being agile and you're moving with that.
1: Trying to, yeah.
0: Obviously food security is a real, it's a massive topic, isn't it? Yeah. And it's one that we are, everyone is experiencing around the world. It's, it's quite a tipping point, really. From the UK's point of view, what you feel the UK could do better to, to better protect food security?
1: Well, yeah, well, I guess the first thing is well, who is the UK? You know, you've got government, and you've got you've got businesses, and you've got society at large. I think, firstly, there does seem to be again like there's there's a niche of people that are acutely aware that we have a food security issue. Yeah. And, and they're, they're actively looking for ways that they can you know, solve that problem for themselves as well as participate in solving that problem you know, mm. for society at large. And then there is this, this firewall of ignorance that there's a lot of people who, are, it, it amazes me that a willingness to be able to, to just assume everything's fine with regards to our food security.
0: Are you really saying that <laughs> there is a huge bulk of the UK that wouldn't really Consider food security, a thing.
1: Well, I think in order to think about food security, you've got to have a general understanding of the mechanics of our food system. Mm. And it's one thing to get some drama on the news, oh, we've got a food security issue and so forth. But to mm. translate that to, well, what does that mean to me? And yeah. what does it actually mean? Yes. Stop. Is is very hard. And so you just fall back on. Well, I've always had food. I can't imagine not having food or not being able to act or the food being unaffordable, so it's, the noise is there. I think the noise, is plenty of noise, but I just don't, I just feel that there's a lot of, you know, ignoring it because what what can you do about it? Anyway, in light of that, what can we be doing about it? I I think there's there's multiple parts of it. One is there is an area, there, there is a need for awareness raising, but People will become aware as the problem becomes worse and more acute, and they're like, oh, right, okay, now I'm aware. So that, that's kind of going to get dealt with, right? Yeah. It's, it's really more around the infrastructure in terms of, not so much the hard infrastructure, but the, the soft infrastructure in terms of building the, the, sort of the, the uh, logistical, transactional, you know, operational systems that coordinate UK food. Right. yeah um, and help to help to manage UK produced food to be distributed within the UK to be as a, as a start right because because of the whole brexit thing and, and and so forth you know I think that there's a there's, there's a lack of an internal food distribution system established mm-hmm. so it's building up the, the the sort of the digital infrastructure for that um, and the, the connections and, and the logistics and then it's about building up the capacity as a, as a country, in terms of farmland, there is far more capacity to produce the amount of, to produce food than is being produced. But that capacity requires skill and labour and investment to unlock to unlock that capacity. Yeah. But it's there, and so it's about that. It's about system systems infrastructure and and capacity. And I think that 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 would go a long way to to mitigating a lot of the sort of food security problem, you know concerns.
0: I know, it seems very off-kilter, doesn't it? I think we've just got so used to importing. You see so much land around here not being used for growing, right? We're living right in the heart of it here.
1: No, I mean there are so many there are so many contributing factors that to yeah. to sit and unpick it all yeah, would take would take a lifetime of investigation and finding yeah. out you know the yeah. subsidies issues and the different countries that are doing things in order to be able to for, for the sake of getting their product out into certain markets and so on. I guess, you know, ultimately though, if I was to try and bucket it into into buckets, it the big challenge I think is largely caused by dominance of large scale centralized systems and conglomerates that have been taking greater and greater market share greater and greater production capacity and therefore the the dynamics that, that they operate on and the economic constraints that they have is very different to small scale in order to resolve the problems of large scale food you can't solve it with large scale food I don't think. I think that that's where smaller scale independent so sort of decentralized food has the that it's got the key to the problem right yeah. it, that's where the solution is so it's about it's a coordination it's a coordination challenge but if you think about it from a, in terms of the actual volume of food that small scale decentralized food producers can produce it's massive i mean when you add it all together if you can if you can coordinate it the volume of food is 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 you know, on par with those of the, of the big players. It's just that they're not coordinated, mm. right? Um, and they're at the edges of the market. But there are over 500 million small-scale farmers or small-scale farms around the world that are under five hectares or under two and a half hectares, I think, that produce over 50% of the food that's consumed on the planet. So, yeah, so the, the capacity is there. It's a coordination that- thing.
0: Just out of interest, if I were to want to become a customer and get involved, could you tell me what the process looks like for someone coming sure.
1: to, to, yeah. to shop with Ubi? Okay, so firstly, you're not shopping with Ubi. You're should be shopping with a local farm or food hub. Where I live in Dartington, we buy from we, we shop with the Apricot Center, which is just over the hill from from where yeah. I live. And so I could find the Apricot Centre either by going to ubi.com or ubi.org and, yeah. and looking at the map and finding the, which, which, which farm is closest to me and then clicking yeah. on that and it takes me to their, to their site on Ubi where I can then see what they've got available, I can subscribe to a regular delivery, I can just buy one off and uh, I can just become a customer just like you would any other online shopping yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, but the difference is you're dealing directly with that farmer. When I pay when I pay for my food, that food, that money goes to the apricot center. Yeah.
0: Um
1: and, and when I've got a problem with with you know my my potatoes are, that I talk to the apricot center about that. And if I'm in Exeter then it's Shillingford Organics. And if I'm in yeah. if I'm in, in south of Oxford, then it's Tollhurst Organic. And so they're all independently representing themselves within their own areas. Amazing. But using the using the UDB platform, number one to do their business, but also to connect in and network with all the other farms and food hubs on that platform.
0: Brilliant! Sounds like a, such a great idea. And what are the lead times, just so we can sort of bash that out a little bit for the?
1: Yeah, it depends. It depends on the on the farm or the food hub, but often it'll be anywhere from sort of two to five days before delivery is when you need to have your order in because mm. it's, it's, it's harvested to order. The way that the, the, the model works is you put your order in, all the orders are collected, the, the orders get cut off, they know exactly what need, what's need been sold and then they'll go out and they harvest that. It's a pull to market as opposed to a push to market. It's a way and forward, that, isn't it? It is, it is. It, it, it reduces, massively reduces waste. But it also mm-hmm. massively reduces uh, packaging because it's it's usually harvested the day before or the day of the delivery. And mm. if you think about what the two reasons for packaging are, one is to preserve food within a long convoluted supply chain, and the other is for merchandising it on on a shelf, right? And yeah. neither of those are required, so you don't have to have, have to do the packaging in most cases.
0: What does the what does the next um, five years look like for Ubi?
1: Well, not like the last, I don't think.
0: Uh, you know, I, I feel like
1: the last, well, it's it's actually, it was 2008, so it's been 15 years since the idea of Ubi started and, and over 10 years since the deliveries, and you know, 12 years of, of delivering food through the platform. In looking back, I think really what we've been doing over that time is just learning and, and building a foundation. And the, the next five years, so the next five to seven years is actually th- this is the time where we need to really hit our straps and do the work. So yeah, I think the next five to seven years is 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 very much about being very highly responsive to changes in the market and recognizing that we don't know how how things are going to play out, but they're probably going to it's going to be rapid, mm. and we need to be focusing on enabling. The, the the farms and food hubs and the, the the food producers the core focus is keep them independent like do whatever we can to, mm-hmm. to, to fortify their independence their ability yeah. to be able to to be autonomous and to be able to stand on their own two feet because that if they if, if, if they're all independent and then they're working together and coordinating that's a super resilient model if small and medium scale you know local regional farms are becoming start to become too dependent on either subsidies or on certain supply chains and things like that then that's that's where the fragility sets in and, and so that's the key is 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 optimize for independence optimize for endu- endurance and resilience and then it's a matter of it's a matter of replication you know the, the tech businesses like to talk about going to scale right oh, how how are we going to scale this I don't, think, I don't think we need to scale. I think we need to replicate. We need to be able to facilitate rapid replication so that, so that it's, it's not about growing one thing really big. It's about replicating something that's at, that, that's at the right size and at, at, a, at an optimal scale for, for that region that they're operating in, finding that sweet spot and then replicating that as far, as, as far and as fast as we can that builds that builds a net of resilience. And it's food, right? So it's a, it's not like inconsequential. It's like very consequential. If sure. we, we have to eat. And so all the other problems pale in comparison to being hungry or to, you know, or to poor distribution of food, pockets pockets where there's hunger and so forth is just as big a problem. Yeah. So that's I think the next five years is all about us being as responsive as we can and focusing on the resilience and independence of the farms and the food producers, but also focusing on the resilience and endurance of the platform. So one of the things we're doing there is we're very frugal, like we keep our costs right down and we operate as efficiently as we can. But the other part of it is all about user ownership. So we, the food producers and the hubs will, as, as, they, as they work and, and trade on the platform, they're gaining ownership in the platform so that the platform mm. itself is owned by the users of the platform,
0: right?
1: Which means that it secures it from being hijacked and taken over by, yeah, some some other someone else with deep pockets. So we've made mm. a, a very clear pledge and a very clear uh, commitment that this will never be sold. You now the platform will never be sold. It needs to be able to sustain itself and to be able to maintain its independence.
0: Yeah and no big changes.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, well, no, no big changes in terms of ownership and governance. Yeah,
0: and so one question we now like to ask at the end of every conversation is, "What what is your morning routine, Pete?
1: On a good morning, I'll get up about quarter to seven, feed the chooks, sort out the guinea pigs, feed the cat, have a coffee, get, get, get some five Tibetan yoga in there, Sometimes I'll do it every morning for for a few months running, and other times I won't. Get the kids' bricky ready. The kids get up. Everyone's the house. The house gets up. Then it's mayhem. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And and then and then the kids are off to school, and I come in here and sit down, and away I go.
0: Nice, good start to the day. And um, for the listener, would you just be able to let us know where people can find you if they want to follow up and find out more?
1: Yeah, easiest way is just just UBI, which is double O, double O, B-Y, it's four O's, B-Y stands for Out of Our Own Backyards. If you Google UBI or if you go to ubi.com or ubi.org, you'll find us.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Pete. It's
1: a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Absolute Purpose Project. Please feel free to follow our work at Absolute PR Marketing, our handle across all channels. And please don't forget to rate, subscribe and share our podcast with all your friends.